welcome back everybody to the Towel and Basin podcast. Jamie Dew again, flying solo without uh, Joe in the room. Uh, but I do have in the room with me Ryan Putman, who's a theology professor here, and this is part two of our discussions about theological disagreement. Welcome back. Good to hey, have you back. Glad to be here. What was the title of the book again that's just released? The title of the book is When Doctrine Divides the People of God, An Evangelical Approach to Theological Diversity. Perfect. Available from Crossway. Available at Crossway now. Uh, so pick that book up if you were interested in this. The part one, we talked about why we divide, and there are it's not just as simple as, hey, read the Bible, we all land on the same page. There are a variety of factors that cause these theological disagreements, and I thought that the discussion there was super helpful for folks to see that this is really not uh, a simple business at all. Uh, so, all right, be that as it may, we we do have theological disagreements. We have them broadly in the evangelical world, to say nothing of disagreements with other perspectives. We have them in the Southern Baptist world. Theological disagreements are here to stay. So the question now in part two is, all right, what do we do about that? How do we navigate through the theological disagreements that we've got? Sure, sure. So I take a, a couple of different questions and sort of raise these questions and then just mm-hmm. sort of work through these questions. Um, and and there's probably a couple of different ways that we can answer these questions, but these are how I answer these questions. The first question was, when should we change our minds about doctrine? Okay. Uh, the second question being, when should doctrine divide us? Is there, a, is there an appropriate is there time, time to for, do that? for, for yeah. doctrine to d- divide us? And then third, um, how then should we disagree? Hmm. Um, okay. That's sort of an ethics of disagreement, an okay. ethical question. All right, so walk through those questions and, and the types of things that you'd want us to consider step-by-step uh, step as we go through those questions. The first one, when should we change our minds? Yeah, and so, you know, it, it was sort of fun to reflect on, you know, if you look at different theologians throughout history, they didn't have, the, the best theologians anyway, they didn't always have static opinions. Right. Um, in <laughs> fact... You know, Augustine wrote a book Absolutely. called Retractions yeah. toward the end of his life where he just, I mean, there's some things that he, he said, you know, in retrospect, right. I wish I would have done it this way or mm-hmm. I, I would have I've seen it more clearly. We've recently seen Wayne Grudem do this. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Wayne Grudem has, has, has changed his position on an aspect of, of divorce. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that, that happens, I think, when people are being intellectually honest. Sure. I don't want to you know, make up my, my mind about all my theological opinions by the time I'm 25 and then just say, for right. the rest of my life, it's going to be set this way. I want to I want to be um, always reforming right. and always conforming to the biblical text. And yet there is, just to pause right here, there is a tendency for us to, when we read past thinkers, to, to assume a staticness to their thought. We say, oh, right. well, Augustine's view was or Aquinas' right. view was. But to your point, the truth is, for just like us— for all these great giants, their their thought was constantly evolving over time. Right, right. And and so my question: When should we change our minds? Is there is there an appropriate time or a place for us to change our minds? And there's been this uh, you know sort of burgeoning new sort of subdiscipline in epistemology. Of course, Doctor Dew wrote the book on epistemology, the the, the, the a very the, basic one, <laughs> the, the book. You know, uh, that, no, it is not. No, the book. well, it's certainly one of the books, and. Uh, but but epistemology is basically the study of how we know what we know, mm-hmm. and you know why why we why we believe what we believe, and uh, epistemology of disagreement is an area that sort of focuses on the question. Okay, we have two reasonably intelligent people, both well educated, 
why is it that, that reasonably intelligent, well-educated people come to such drastically different conclusions? Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's a, that's, a, that's a complex sort of uh, set of questions. But a lot of it boils down to um, how much time has a person spent studying a particular topic? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what sort of evidences does a person have Access to or value or value, you know. I mean, so there's there's a number of different things that sort of you know factor into that particular question, and I think it's worth noting that that not every disagreement that we think is a disagreement is a genuine disagreement. There's mm-hmm. there's there's some things that are just semantical differences right. between us, but there are some genuine disagreements that are prompted by. Um, by 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 basically not spending enough time focusing in on an issue or thinking about an issue or reflecting on an issue, but then you have the the big problem in epistemology of disagreement, and that is peer disagreement. Hmm. What do you what do you do when you have people who, for all for all appearances, seem to have the same amount of education, seem to have the same evidence before them? Seem to display the same epistemic virtues. That is, that they humility, the humility, teachableness. You right. know, they 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 all display those same sort of characteristics. What happens when you have two um, people who are like that, who are peers in certain ways, uh, come to a disagreement? And I, you know, I, I look across the board. You know, we we mentioned in the last episode the, the you know the debate over Calvinism and Arminianism. There are New Testament scholars who I greatly respect mm-hmm. who write a commentary on Romans, and I know they've spent their entire career studying Paul, right. and they see um, they see you know, the, this sort of Calvinistic reading of Paul as, as the most faithful reading. And then on the, on the other side of the spectrum, equally faithful, equally gifted, equally intelligent uh, scholars who see... Uh, an Arminian framework or something in between when they're yeah. reading Paul. And, and so epistemology of disagreement sort of helps us think through when would be the time to change your mind or when should we, you know, hold steadfast in our particular position or when should we just sort of, you know, reserve judgment mm-hmm. and, and just wait till we have more answers. Mm-hmm. And so that's what that particular subdiscipline does for us. I don't have definitive answers from or for epistemology of disagreement. I just think that these are helpful questions to think through, especially mm-hmm. when we're looking at the disparity of our interpretations mm-hmm. of the biblical text. So that helps us think through the when we should change our minds. Uh, I mean, it seems to me, you know, when we're convinced by evidence, when we're convinced by good argument, when we've exercised intellectual humility and, and listening and things like that. Those would be help, sort of helpful guides as sure. we think about that. So what about the next one? How should we uh, – when should we divide? Are there are there hills to die on? What are those hills? How do we think through that? Yeah. Uh, of course, I remember, I remember when I was in middle school, my youth minister got up and preached the sermon from John 17. And, you know, of course, it was Jesus praying that we would be unity. one, you know, yeah. unity. And and he got up and he made this comment, and and it was, I mean, it was well intended, but like a lot of well intended comments that made in the pulpit, it was just it was nonsense. He said that denominations are the invention of the devil, 
focus on the doctrine. Focus on doctrine is 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 a, is a way that 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 you know the enemy uses to divide us in a way that you know and just really negative sort of outlook right, on on right. doctrine and theology. And I think that's the sort of response that a lot of people have. What really matters is that we should just love Jesus and then love one another. And when people ask that question of me or, or tell, tell me that, I, I, I pose a counter question, you know, well, who do people say that Jesus is? You know, it's a yeah. question that Jesus himself asked. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's real differences in the way that people see and understand Jesus. Yeah. So um, I think it is important that we make a case for truth. It is important that we make a case for, for fidelity to the biblical text, even if that does mean that we have some disagreements. But on the flip side of things, I think that there are some people uh, who who basically see any and all theological disagreements as false doctrine or heresy. Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted to do here was, number one, define false doctrine biblically. Mm-hmm. False doctrine biblically is not disagreement over minor matters. Mm-hmm. And, and the, sort of the disadvantage that we have on this side of, of, of canonization is, you know, if they had a theological disagreement in the first century, they could go to an apostle right. and sort of settle it. You know, they, right. we, we don't have that particular advantage. We don't have, um, you know, as, as Protestants, as evangelicals, we don't have councils that, that, that you know, a magisterium that sort of gives us this inerrant interpretation of the biblical text. We're just sort of, you know, wrestling through it um, mm-hmm. as best we can with, with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, so not every theological disagreement is a false doctrine, and I want to just very clearly make that case. But on the other hand, doctrine does matter. Right. And so trying to strike that balance. And there have been a lot of helpful ways that people have sort of addressed these things over the years. You know, one, one person who's greatly influenced the way I think through these things is Dr. Moeller, in his theological triage, that's certainly not the only way that you could deal with this. Mm -hmm. We have to have some way of doing doctrinal taxonomy. We have to have some way of distinguishing between major and minor doctrines, not that one's unimportant and the other one's important, but rather there's different levels of importance. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to have a way of distinguishing between what you said, the hills on which to die and those things which... You know, we can kind of agree to disagree. Sure. And um, what I propose here is there's basically three tests that we apply. First and foremost, what I call a hermeneutical text. What's test, which is whatever's whatever's clearest in the biblical text, um, whatever is a direct statement of Scripture or a clear implication of Scripture, those are things that we make first-tier matters of importance. Mm-hmm. So the deity of Jesus, the deity of the Holy Spirit, um, that we're saved by grace through faith. I mean, those things are clear in the biblical text, so they they rise to a, to a level of sort of first-tier importance. Sure. Um, along the same lines, I think the, the doctrine of the Trinity, while not explicitly stated in the Scripture, is, is strongly implied in Scripture. And mm-hmm. I have another book elsewhere where I kind of, Trace um, how we go from these 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 sort of Im- Im- implications of scripture to explicitly formulating them as doctrine. Um, but those things I think are pretty clear when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. But then um, things that are less clear, 
you know, we, we debate over Romans 9. Mm-hmm. We debate over Revelation 20. We have those debates. We have those, those, again, those different interpretive paradigms that we're taking to a text. And so we want to, uh, we want to say that something like that might be moved to a secondary or tertiary status. It's, it's not that it's unimportant that Jesus is coming back. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would raise that to a first-tier issue. Right. We, we have to affirm Jesus is but coming back. But it's the details It's the details. To, right. and, and the same thing's true when it comes to things like election. We all believe that we're predestined. We all believe that we're elected. The Bible plainly states that. The disagreement is the mechanism, mm-hmm. the way in which God does that. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's, the, that's the hermeneutical test. The second is the gospel test. What do you proclaim when you proclaim the gospel? Mm-hmm. What, the question I ask students is what sort of expectation do you place on a gospel conversation when you have a conversation with a student down the road at the University of New Orleans or at Tulane here in the city, and you have a gospel, what, what sort of things do you expect them to believe in order to become a Christian? Mm-hmm. And I think the Bible draws those lines for us. They might disagree with us on, on, on the age of the earth. They might disagree with us on some of those things right now. We can have that conversation. We can have those conversations sort of later down the road in discipleship. But what is essential to the gospel? Yeah. And uh, and then third, you know, uh, the question of uh, the question of, of what can we do practice wise within the within the local church. Um, we are going to we're obviously if we have different interpretations on baptism, mm-hmm. whether or not baptism is for believers or whether it's the entryway into the covenant for 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 babies. Right. You know. We can we can we can love each other. We can recognize each other's brothers, sisters in Christ, and still say, you know, because I have convictions about what the biblical text says here, we really can't do local church together. Mm-hmm. We can we can collaborate on mission. We can see ourselves as great commissioned people who are who are who are who are linked arm in arm to work together particular things, particular ministry efforts. But we, we can't do we can't have fellowship at a local church level over those things. So those are the three things I would say go into when doctrine should divide us. Being okay. able to come up with some sort of taxonomy <clears throat> to separate between what's most important, which you have to believe in order to be a Christian, mm-hmm. what's of secondary importance, you have to believe this in order to be a Baptist or a Presbyterian or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then a level of, of third importance are things that even in a local church we can agree to disagree about. So then at the end of the day, those some of those disagreements are always going to be there. We will live with them forever. Uh, and so the reality will be that uh, me and you or you and someone else or this group and that group are just going to see some things differently. So then now the, the million-dollar question is how do you do that? How do you do that in a way that as a, as a watching world, lost world, observes what we do there. How do you do that in a way that's honoring to Christ? Well, what I do in the book is I, I, I practice something that we call theology of retrieval. That is, I try to look at church history and let church history try to help give us some answers into the practice. Because again, the New Testament, we don't really have disagreements over the meaning of Scripture. We have disagreements of a, of a different level, but they're not, mm-hmm. they're not disagreeing over the meaning of biblical text per se. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we have to do is we have to kind of look beyond what happened in the first century. And one of the, the, the most interesting examples um, in, in Protestant evangelical history is, is the disagreement between George Whitfield 
and John Wesley, hmm. both of whom were founders of the Methodist movement um, in, in 18th century England. And, um, you know, they went very divergent paths. Mm-hmm. Even though they were best friends, they went very divergent paths theologically because Whitfield became increasingly more Calvinistic and Wesley became increasingly more Arminian in his interpretation of Scripture. Actually, I think he went beyond what Arminius himself did in a, in a lot of ways mm-hmm. in terms of his, his, his own theological positions. So um, what, what happened, and one of the unfortunate things that happened in their relationship is their, their public disagreement became very nasty and hostile. I mean, I imagine if, if, if there were blogs back then, they would have been blogging about each other, doing <laughs> podcasts and doing tweeting. YouTube videos, tweeting at each other. I mean, there would have been... 140 a, character shots at there, each other. All there would have been a lot of that awesome. sort of thing. But, but back no. then, there, there were some pretty nasty things that they said sure. and did to each other in different, in different forms of media. And what God did in their lives is God helped them realize, hey, you guys aren't going to agree on these issues on this side of heaven. But that doesn't mean you can't treat each other in brotherly ways. Mm -hmm. And the story ended very sweetly. They were reconciled because they had godly friends who stepped in and and helped them reconcile, Mm -hmm. that helped them recognize, hey, we might disagree about these sort of third-tier issues, but we don't disagree about the gospel. We don't disagree about what's most important. Mm -hmm. And... um, Actually, it was Wesley who preached Whitfield's funeral. Hmm. And the phrase that we so commonly use every day, you know, people use in our culture, agree to disagree, Mm -hmm. the first time that shows up in English is at that funeral message. Hmm. And uh, and so, um, you know... I, the the takeaway that I, I want to encourage people to do is, is to, again, disagree in a way that you recognize the inherent value of another person made in God's image. Mm-hmm. Disagree in such a way that you recognize the world is watching. Your mm-hmm. public witness is at stake right. in how you disagree. And um, what, I, what I really, really, really push people to do is is try to have one-on-one conversations, if possible, with your interlocutors. Don't always assume the worst. Read charitably. Mm -hmm. That's a a big thing. We need to read charitably. And if if at all possible, take opportunities to pray with the people that you disagree with. I get that Mm -hmm. from Timothy George. um, And I, I just thought that was a very helpful thing. When you start to pray with the person with whom you disagree, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it certainly changes your outlook or your perspective on them. Yeah. And uh, I just think that there's a more Christian way for Christians yeah. to, to disagree about doctrine. And at the end of the day, you know, that's really where this is all going. How do we, how do we, how do we preserve Christian witness mm-hmm. in the way that we disagree with each other? I think that's what Jesus was getting at in John 17. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Super helpful. I, I mean, the, the gr- disagreements are here, uh, intellectually at least. They may always be vigorous, but... Uh, Until the Lord returns, and we're yeah. all proven right or wrong. But I would encourage just our listeners to hear uh, what Ryan has said today. Uh, civility is dead in our ecosystem right now, and uh, 
uh, golly, Pete, I, I have a hard time seeing that this honors Christ the way it sure. often is done today. So appreciate your time and appreciate your thought on this. And again, the name of the book is? When Doctrine Divides, the People of God, an Evangelical Approach to Theological Diversity. Yeah, man. Hey, congratulations on that. Uh, for If you've never written a book, it is like giving birth to a yak. And uh, it is long and difficult and painful. And uh, how would you so, know that? I'm just, <laughs> just my, curious. I'm using my sanctified imagination to and envisioning pain, but uh, it's a long process. Most people think that you know you write a book and you turn it in, you're done. Nope, you're actually only about halfway done at that point because right. there's a lot of other work that's got to be done. So, congratulations, well done. Thank you, sir. Grateful for you. Hey everybody, this is Jamie and Joe again. If you like this podcast, would you leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? That helps other people find it. And if you have any questions, we'd love to hear about them. Just go to jamiedo.com slash questions and send them in that way. And we'll take a look at the most frequently asked questions and give them a shot.